So let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, verse 23. Today we come to the end of our study on the seven churches of Asia Minor, seven churches of Revelation. We began our study of the book of Revelation in September. And we advanced and made it to chapter 2 in November. And since then, we have carefully studied these seven churches. And as we began that study, uh, chapter 2 and 3, I tried to position the study of those chapters within the context of the entire book and to show us how they function in relation to the rest. These chapters function as the application section to the prophetic section of the book. Because this book is in the form of an epistle, in the form of a letter. That's why we read in chapter 1, verse 4, John says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. That sounds just like an epistle. This is a prophetic book, chapter 1, verse 3, but it's in the form of an epistle. And in epistles, we find two main parts. A portion that is given to doctrine and a portion given to application. In the book of Revelation, those parts are flipped so as to be in chronological order. The application first, and the doctrine second, which is yet to come. It's prophetic. Now, last week, we began to wrap up our study in these chapters by summarizing each of the seven messages to each of the seven churches. And what that allowed us to get is a big picture of what Jesus desires in his church. What we saw was what really matters to Jesus. He wants wholehearted devotion, love. He wants resolve in the face of persecution. He wants distinction in the world. He wants vigilance against evil. He wants integrity instead of a facade. He wants faithfulness to the end, and he wants usefulness by dependence upon him. Those are the messages that Jesus sent to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Now today, we wrap up our study for now, on chapters 2 and 3. And as we do this, we are going to zoom out a bit from the seven specific messages that Jesus gave. What we're going to do today is consider the theology and the form of these letters, and most importantly, Christ himself. So, my dear brothers and sisters in the Lord, today let's consider the one who addresses the churches. Let's pray. Father, as we approach this passage of scripture again, we ask that you would use it in our hearts. Allow us as we try to look, uh, look over these chapters in an overview fashion to really solidify some things and that you would make our path plain for us as we try to walk humbly with you. We pray for your grace even in this moment as we come to understand your word better. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. It seems that America is in panic mode. If you've been to a store recently, you realize that the checkout lines look like they look when it's Christmas time. They're long. And instead of runs on toys and electronics, there's been runs on paper products. You say, well, why? Well, coronavirus. The President of the United States has issued a state of national emergency. Therefore, our local schools have been temporarily shut down. 
Travel to certain countries has been suspended. And all this because of the announcement that we see on the news that a number of the United States have contracted this virus. And the response to that announcement has been to raid stores and hunker down a bit. Well, it's fascinating to see how people respond to such announcements. Some people respond quickly. Other people are slow to respond or don't respond at all. And perhaps perhaps there will be someone who ignores all the precautions and gets through this time safe and sound. Perhaps. But there are announcements and impending circumstances that must not be ignored. And that's the case in the chapters before us, the opening chapters of the book of Revelation. In chapter 1, the Apostle John saw Jesus Christ in his glory. And chapters 2 and 3 are the extension of that very scene. That's why as you look in some of your Bibles, you'll see that chapters 2 and 3 are in red. Because these are the very words that Jesus dictated to John. These are the letters that Christ gave himself. These letters are set up basically the same. When we look at them kind of as an x-ray of each one, each one has seven parts for the most part. The first part is a command to write. That's why the beginning of each letter begins to the angel of the church, write. The second part is a self-description of Jesus Christ. For example, he says, I am the first and the last. Third, we have any commendations that are to be mentioned. So Jesus says, I know your works. Fourth, any accusations that are to be made, Jesus gives. He says to them, but I have this against you, for example. Fifth, there's the command to repent. Sixth, there's the command to discern the truth. Let him who has an ear, one who has an ear, let him hear. And then you have seventh, the promise to the overcomer, to the one who overcomes. So seven parts that for the most part show up in each one of these letters. Now, those parts ought not really seem strange to us because they're kind of like what we would find in a personal review at work. One of your superiors sits down with you. He states who he is. He proceeds to tell you how you're doing. He tells you what you're struggling with. He urges you to change what is necessary. He asks if you understand. And then he assures you that if you comply, you'll be rewarded for that. I don't know if that last one is always true, but we'd hope it would be true. We see a similar thing here. These letters are a kind of sit-down between Jesus and the seven churches. Why would Jesus do this? Well, we find that out in the midst of these letters. In the fourth letter to the church in Thyatira, there is a bit of a break from the normal structural elements. What we find in chapter 2, verse 23, is a theological statement that actually isn't original to the book of Revelation. It's set forth even in the Old Testament. Prophet Jeremiah is spoken again by Jesus in the Gospels. It's repeated by the Apostle Paul. And it's repeated here again by Jesus Christ himself. Chapter 2, verse 23. The Bible says this, All the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Now this truth undergirds all that is written in these seven letters. And we need to discern the truth of this verse. We must. 
You see, this verse is about Jesus and what is true about Him. We must not be fuzzy about our thoughts and our beliefs about Jesus. He is the omniscient judge of all. And one day, all will pass before Him. And under His soul-penetrating gaze, each and every person will hear the final judgment upon His soul. And given that truth, we must take what Jesus says here seriously. He's not to be taken lightly, given the two theological truths that He reveals about Himself in verse 23. The first truth that He reveals is His penetrating insight. Because the verse says, I am He who searches mind and heart. He's the one who searches the mind and heart. And He chooses to not keep that fact hidden. He reveals that He knows. And He told each church that He knew them through and through. Now, to most of them, we read through and Jesus said, I know your works. In other words, I know how you're doing. To one, He said, I know your tribulation, which is to say, I know what you're enduring. To another, he said, I know you have little strength, meaning I know how hard it must be for you. To another, he said, I know that you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. That is to say, he knew the true reality behind the false reputation. The point is, Jesus' knowledge isn't that of a common man. His knowledge is that of God because Jesus is God. His eye is like a flame of fire. That's what we saw in chapter 1, verse 14. In the description of him, it says the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. You see, it is by our eyes that you and I gain knowledge. But we flip off the lights and we're blind. But for him, his eyes have their own light in them. So he beholds all things, whether they're hidden in the heart or in the dark. The psalmist said... Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. He goes on to say, even the darkness is not dark to you. Darkness is as light with you. So Jesus has penetrating knowledge which discerns every part of each one of us. And that should fill us with fear, just as we perhaps would review in our minds what happened this last week, whether it was it public, whether it was in private, was it, whether it was in word, thought, or deed. Jesus knows it all. It's almost like someone has unlocked your smartphone and rummaged through it. It's unnerving. Yet, his insight ought to be the reason that we seek him, just as one seeks out a doctor. A person by himself wonders, why am I coughing? Yet when he searches out someone who's more discerning, he comes to understand his condition better. And so it is with Jesus. Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10 says, Who can understand the heart of a man? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. Therefore, you and I ought to pray, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Jesus has penetrating insight. Yet how are people to know that? Well, we know that because it is written in His Word and it's communicated by His messengers. 
And as we went through these letters, we noticed that each letter is addressed to the angel. That would be a human messenger. To the angel of the church. You see, the point is, Jesus has chosen to give his message to the messenger of the church. The angel of the church is the pastor of the church because he is the one tasked with the responsibility of communicating Christ's message. The pastor is to be a messenger. His only required skill is to be able to teach. He must preach the word, as it says in First and Second Timothy. He must neither add to the Word of God nor take from the Word of God, which has been written down in the Bible for us. Yet that requirement is often violated. You say, why? Because people love to add their own wisdom, which often aligns with what current culture is saying for us to do. Or people remove things that are difficult or even what is most important. I say that Preachers will even move, remove the difficult things because who wants to talk about uncomf- uncomfortable topics that are written in the Word of God? It is so much easier to kind of glaze over them, to pass by them, to not address that passage, to not preach that passage. But what is much more terrible that happens in many, many Christian churches is that what is most important in the message is left out, and that is the person of Jesus Christ himself. That is the great omission in the Christian church pulpit. As you look at these letters, the very first thing that is mentioned in each one of them is a description of Jesus Christ, his person. Because who he is, is foremost in his message. So much of Christianity is Christless. It's just a form of religion, a teaching of how to be better than the next person. And it has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. primary thing that a pastor must do is present Jesus Christ as Jesus Christ has revealed himself. And again and again and again that is set forth in these letters. This is a sober truth for every minister, and it is really instructive for all of God's people to want to expect that from their minister. Jesus reveals this penetrating insight through his messengers. And he reveals what he knows. He reveals what he knows. What does Jesus know about the church? Well, he knows what's good. Many times, Jesus acknowledged what was good and appropriate. So as we move through these letters, Jesus commended toil in opposing evil, steadfastness in enduring hardship, resolve in the face of, of opposition, increasing and abundant good works, love and faith evidenced in service and obedience, or endurance, obedience to his word and loyalty to his name. You see, in these letters, Jesus tells us what he desires, and he commended in churches what he desired in them. You say, what, of what value is that? What that does is help calibrate our efforts. Helps calibrate our efforts. Making sure that true north is how we set up our lives. But it also, when we come to his accusations against the church, those are meant to curb our actions. Because Jesus not only knows what's good in the church, he also knows what's not. 
You see, after he commends what he could in the church, the message turns the corner and it says, I have this against you. For example, chapter 2, verse 4, and there's several others. What follows is his accusations against the church. So Christ not only commends, but he confronts and condemns, for example, a lack of love, allowing false teaching, tolerating wickedness, self-sufficiency and self-deception, and lukewarmness. The one who searches the heart and mind is able to look at what the church is doing even in a church that has a reputation of being alive, and he finds within them deadness. He finds their works inadequate upon his inspection, chapter 3, verse 2. And in all of this, we realize that Jesus knew exactly what was good and what was not. And the way he categorizes these things needs to be the way that we categorize them. What he commends, we ought to commend. What he confronts and condemns, we ought to confront and condemn. There's no reason for us to reconsider his diagnosis. Despite any sin that a church had, he commended what was good in other churches. Just reflect on that for a moment. Sometimes when we think of other churches, we can't get past the problems with the church. Jesus was able to get past some of those things and relate what he did commend in the church, which is instructive for us. But despite any good works of the church, he condemned what wasn't good in the church. And there is instruction for us as well. Do we have such colored glasses that we look at a church and think there could be nothing wrong with that church when there actually is something wrong? What we find as we look at all these seven letters to these seven churches as a whole is that Christ addressed a broad spectrum of spiritual health in the churches. That is to say, you can find people who claim to follow Jesus Christ, churches who name his name, that are in almost any possible conceivable spiritual condition. Some are alive and well. Some are dead. But he has a word for each one. And his analysis of the church, churches helps shape our conception of other churches and of our own church. Some churches are vigilant, are faithful no matter the cost, some churches compromise. Some people are, churches are wrongly tolerant of sin. Some churches have no spiritual integrity behind their reputation. Some are small but steadfast. Some are worthless and wretched because they're self-sufficient. You see, there are churches in almost every conceivable spiritual state. And Jesus knows that. He knows that because he has penetrating insight. But secondly, this morning, Jesus Christ reveals his righteous judgment. Jesus Christ reveals his righteous judgment. As verse 23 says, he will give to each according to his works. The truth that is stated here runs through the book, and we find it even on the last page of the book, in the last page of our Bibles. Jesus said in chapter 22, verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. His judgment will be complete. His judgment will be appropriate. His judgment is certain. It is inescapable. And he will reward all one day. 
Each of these letters concludes with a promise to the one who overcomes. And to that one, Jesus holds out a promise of future blessing. You say, what kinds of things does he hold out? Let's look at our Bibles, chapter 2, verse 7. To the one who overcomes, it says, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Chapter 2, verse 11. He holds out hidden manna and a white stone. Chapter 2, verse 26, 28. He will grant authority over the nations in the morning star. Chapter 3, verse 5. He will grant white garments. And to summarize, a name in the book and before the Father in heaven. Chapter 3, verse 12. He will grant security and status in the city of God. And in chapter 3, verse 21, He will grant a seat with Christ on His throne. You see, He will grant us things and blessings that are beyond our comprehension. And there are things that will not appear right now in the moment, but will be one day for those who overcome. And that is really where the difficulty lies. It comes up, it's the same issue that comes up when it comes to long-term savings. You see, you have to portion out your paycheck so you can save for a big expense. That's difficult when your money could be used for some delicacy today. For me, when I was young, what that meant was I had to save for college instead of sinking my money into a car. But those are the kinds of choices you and I face every single day. And we base our choices on the things that we value, whether or not we're going to buy something today or save and acquire something one day. And what Jesus is doing here is holding out future blessings in order to encourage us to pursue his reward one day. The question then is, what do we need to do if we're going to receive that future reward one day? Well, before we find the answer in these letters, what do you think? What do you think it will take to receive that blessing one day? The pervading wisdom is, if you're going to make it into heaven, reform your ways to do and do something more acceptable to God. Become a better you. That's the pervading wisdom. That is the wisdom of most religion. Yet, that won't secure future reward because Jesus requires something different. And as we look at chapter 2, verse 5, 16, 21, 22, chapter 3, verses 3 and 19, we find that what Christ requires is repentance today. Repentance indicates a change of mind. And a good passage for you to fix your mind on, by way of illustration of what repentance is, is Jesus' parable of the two sons who were told to go to work. And certainly we can all uh, observe, we have all observed the fact that a child is told to do something and we observe how he responds. Well, in this case, one of the sons said, no. But later, he changed his mind and went to work. That is to say, he repented. In five of these seven churches, Jesus called for this kind of change of mind, this change of heart that would inevitably lead to a change of life. Jesus wants repentance. But the problem with the pervading wisdom is that people think that they can change, but they actually can't change. 
people make a resolution, but they relapse and they don't recover. And even as we consider what Jesus said to the rich young ruler when Jesus told him to sell all he had and to come follow him, we realize that that person was unable to change because he loved something more than he loved Jesus Christ. Man's problem is that he loves something more than Jesus, and that's why he can't change. There's only one who deserves the totality of our affection, and that is Christ. But the good news is that Jesus is able and willing to grant repentance to any and all who will come to him. He can and will change the heart so that we will love him most. That is the good news. But we have to go to him for that. Now, friends, as we come to a close, let's consider several questions to apply this truth. The truth that Jesus requires repentance today. And I have three questions for us. First, in the scheme of all of our religious thinking, do we value repentance as much as we should? I'm drawing this from the fact that the repeated message and call of the Lord Jesus Christ to His church was to repent, repent, repent. Is that what you and I value? I ask that because it's really easy to be religious. It's really easy to live better than the next person, which is what most people think religion is living better than someone else. But with that kind of religious facade, there is no change of mind. There's no change of heart. It is Christianity without repentance, without a change of heart. And that kind of Christianity tends to be found out in time. And that's why you hear people say, Christianity, that's just hypocrisy. Christianity without repentance isn't true Christianity because Jesus Christ requires repentance of all who follow him. He requires it. So, brothers and sisters in the Lord, do we value repentance as much as we should? That's my first question. That leads to our second question. How necessary is it for decent churches to repent? We went through some of these churches and found them to be vigilant, to be flush with good works. Jesus seemed to look at the churches and say, you've got a good grade. But then he goes on and calls them to repent. And that goes against prevailing wisdom as well. Because most would reason and say, well, anything above 60 is a passing grade. You and I have experienced that in the classroom. I mean, I got a D, I got a C, I got a B. I don't really need an A. I passed. But that is not... Jesus' mentality for his church and his requirement for the church. He requires repentance. And the point there is this. Repentance ought to be a continual quality among God's people. It's not simply that God's people one day, years and years ago, turned to him, and now everything's okay and all set, and I've got my ticket stamped. Instead, the life of a Christian must be continual conformity to the image of Jesus Christ, where we continually acknowledge our own way and turn from that to have God's mind about things, about truth. That we, instead of our own truth, 
come to believe what he says as the truth? That's the second question I have. Does a good church really need to repent? No good qualities. No good qualities in any of these churches in some way lessened Jesus' requirement to repent. They all must repent. You say, well, what happens if the church doesn't repent? That's my third question this morning. What happens if they just say, whatever? Well, in these letters, Jesus explained that there were were perhaps going to be some immediate consequences. For example, chapter 2, verse 5, if you do not repent, I will remove your lampstand. But beyond that, there's a much more fearful reality than a church's doors being closed. And as we read through the rest of this book, we learn about those who refuse to repent. And this is where we really need to engage at the end of this message. Jesus has the requirement for his church to repent. Now let's look at those who don't repent. Chapter 9, verse 20 and 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by those plagues. Obviously, we've moved into the judgment section of the book. It says of them who did not repent of their works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their sorceries, and their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Jesus talks about the wicked as those who will not repent. They won't change their mind. We turn to Revelation 16, verses 9 through 11, where it says this, They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give Him glory. The more I've studied repentance and glory, the more I see a connection between the two. I don't want to be dogmatic, but I would say strongly, one of the best ways you and I can glorify God is by repenting of our sin, saying what God says about what we do, what we say, what we think. When we agree with God, we give Him glory. These refuse to repent. These refuse to give Him glory. They curse the God of heaven for their pain and their sores. They did not repent of their deeds. You see, the doctrine section of this book teaches that Jesus will one day judge those who refuse to repent. You see, men's sins render him an abomination before God and unworthy to enter the city of God. Revelation 21, 27, nothing unclean will ever enter it. And the point is that failure to repent now will result in judgment then. And being among the assembly of the saints won't be a refuge for the unrepentant when Jesus comes to judge. I often wonder how many in Babylon that we'll read of many chapters from now are sitting in church pews, but unrepentant. You see, if the church is to avoid the judgment of God, they must repent today, or they will be judged just like the rest who refuse to repent. What needs to mark us, brothers and sisters in in the Lord, indeed ought to be the things that Christ has given 
the seven messages to the seven churches. But we all need to be known for this quality of repentance, that we have had a change of mind about ourselves, about God. Recently, the president announced a national state of emergency because of the coronavirus, and people responded. Seemingly, they've responded quite quickly. As we look at Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus is announcing that he has penetrating insight in righteous judgment. And that announcement, we all need to take seriously because he says that all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart and will give to each according to his works. You see, this is far more serious than any virus, no matter how deadly it is, because it's Jesus Christ who's the omniscient judge of all. Let's pray. Father, as we consider Christ, we ask that you will help us to consider him as he truly is, not some fabricated idea of who he is imagined to be, someone more like Santa Claus, Instead of that, he is the God of glory, whom each one will pass before one day and give an account and hear his judgment. So, Father, we pray that you would be gracious today to us, to anyone who has not yet repented of his sins and turned to you, that he would today do so. This is not a a little issue. Christ is of such substance and worth that it is necessary and appropriate that anything else in today's schedule would be stopped and that this would come to the forefront, that one would come to deal with the state of his soul and repent of his sin and trust in Christ. And Father, the rest of us who already have done that and know that ought to be done, If there is some sin that we harbor in our hearts, we pray that you would be gracious to us beyond the grace that you've given us to allow us to see that sin today, that you would be gracious to us, that we would make the decision today to repent, to change our mind about what we've been doing, to ask for your grace to walk in newness of life through the power of your spirit and obedience to your word. And Father, we are so thankful that you give this to us now so that we don't stand before you one day unaware of what we will face, but instead we will stand before you as those who have listened to your word of warning and submitted ourselves to you. We are so thankful that you've been so gracious to us so as to make us receptive to your word. Now commit us to obedience, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.